Coming up in this episode, I speak with Dr. Ian Gargan, CEO at Finn, the private healthcare information network, about the role of the independent sector, the critical importance of data for patients, and the workforce challenges it faces. If you provide competition in the marketplace, and also if you measure all of the, and, and utilize the data to drive better outcomes for patients, then effectively you will have a paradigm shift and an improvement in patient care over the long term. It's important that it, healthcare is a nice place to work, it's a good place to work, it's friendly, it's embracing, it's educational. So those clever people are encouraged to continue their professional and personal development and get retained within the NHS and the private sector. I really encourage the population to change their perception about what is public and private care. Don't think of it as a two-tier system where one is better and one is different. Think of it as a twin-track system that runs in parallel and that one can learn from the other. Hello, I'm Sahel Mirza and welcome to this episode in Series 2 of our Voices of Care podcast. I'm joined today by Dr Ian Gargan, the CEO of FIN, the Private Healthcare Information Network. At Voices of Care, we try to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector and how we can enable the healthcare workforce of the future. In this episode, we're talking about the role of the independent sector, the importance of transparency in data and its own workforce challenges. And who better than uh, an entrepreneur, a doctor and a psychologist? Ian, uh, it's great to have you here. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Hal. It's a pleasure. Before we get into the detail in terms of the substantive issues, can we step back a bit and look at the work of Finn and what it does? It's been around now for nearly 10 years. And perhaps you can give us that broader picture because it's a vital role, particularly to drive patient outcomes. Correct. So FIN was established, Private Health Information Network, fin.org.uk, is established a mandate, established 10, almost 11, 12 years ago, and then mandated nearly 10 years ago by the Competition and Markets Authority was the Office for Fair Trading to effectively quality assure and inform patient choice in the independent sector. So if you're a patient going to use a private hospital, a surgeon or a doctor is working in the private network, then Finn creates and gathers data and has the architecture to gather that data from over 650 sites around Great Britain and Northern Ireland to be able to give information transparency so that the patient can make an informed choice about who is the best doctor to choose and where is the best place to go to get their treatment. And it can be quite a, a tricky pathway if you've never done that before. And I think um, your, your website is designed to help people even if they're first time. Uh, into the sector. Absolutely. So we have an animated series. We have a lot of information on data sheets about like how, what you can expect when you go to a private hospital, what you can expect when you go to a hospital. We work closely with the NHS. So what you should expect from care. As a doctor, I've always thought of patients, not just as people who are desperately need care and are sick and, and want intervention, but as customers who should be afforded the absolute highest quality of product. And Finn is one of the, uh, is the gold standard and benchmark to be able to provide that information so that the customer, i.e. the patient, can make an informed choice about the product and also understand and be educated about what their journey is going to be like. It's very difficult for a patient. It's very stressful when you're sick. So we want, we want to make it as easy as possible, that journey, so that they not only get the best care, but also that they feel very relaxed when they're choosing that care. And there's an element of dynamism within uh, the mission as well, because it's not just about, uh, obviously, patient choice, but also driving and contributing to clinical improvements. There's a number of uh, partners that you work with, from regulators to the NHS, as you mentioned. Yeah, so in, in our business, the mantra is serve the patient, support the stakeholder, and deliver the order. The serving the patient is clear. 
our stakeholders are the doctors, the hospitals, all the private hospitals, and the NHS uh, in some part, and then delivering the order. So the order is the um, the competition market authority CMA's order it has to be delivered by June twenty six. So we're there to um, carry out that mandate, but to effectively in. If you, if you provide competition in the marketplace and also if you measure all of the and, and utilise the data to drive better outcomes for patients, then effectively you will have a paradigm shift and an improvement in patient care over the long term. And that's, that's probably my driver as a doctor. While being the CEO and leader of a great team, as a doctor ultimately and our whole team, we want to make patients better. Absolutely. Now, it's, I think it's uh, a year or so since your announcement. It's been an extraordinary period of time uh, for you. Um, just want to look back at the strategy a little bit, because obviously you said uh, Finn has been around a decade plus. Uh, you, d- you did pause, you stepped back as an organisation uh, in 2022 um, and delivered a, the delivery plan for the next yep. four years. Can you expand a little bit on the philosophy behind that and what, and what you learned as an organisation? Yeah, so the order was uh, released in 2014 and it, while it's, le- it's legislation and there, it actually underpins what we do, but it's very complicated what we do. I think Finn did an awful lot of amazing work for eight, nine years, far before I ever joined, but they realised how complex this was um, and how they're, they're quite a unique position as an organisation. It's not been done in the NHS before, it's not been done in the private sector before, this is a unique product, as it were, that we're driving, and we realised how complicated it was, so we, we almost did an awful lot of heavy lifting, but then there was a reset, and the reset then uh, allowed us the time to publish the, the, the I suppose, the path mm. to delivery by 2026, which will start stage one delivery will be by October 2024. And uh, we're very aggressive in terms of what we want to do in terms of delivery in 24, 25 and 26. But also um, we then published the evidence-based assessment, which was underpinned by work done by University of Oxford and the London School of Economics. Um, and it was our reset to kind of have the whole industry and sector, the doctors, the hospitals, everyone agree, this is what good quality looks like and this is what the delivery will be by 2026. No, great. Well, that, that's leadership. You've uh, put your uh, name against the dates. We'll we'll have a look at that. Yeah. Uh, taking a broader picture of the independent sector, Lang Boisson, who provide a penetrative analysis of it, shows that uh, pre-pandemic levels, the independent sector is 7 billion people, uh, in turnover, 7 billion pounds. Um, it's facing here in 2023 the opportunity of historically high levels of demand. So there's great opportunity. We've certainly seen the commentary of a bounce back for the independent sector, new entrants. What's your uh, perspective? I mean, Finn has got a unique perspective with its data. In terms of activity you're seeing, is it right across the board, self-pay, private uh, medical insured, uh, day admissions? There seems to be quite a buoyancy in the sector at the moment. Yeah, so self-pay was definitely up, say, after the pandemic. It increased about 134% in some parts of the country, but more generally about 33% over the whole country. Now it's beginning to level off back to pre-pandemic levels Mm. but subscription to private medical insurance is going up so Mm. over half a million increase in subscribers this year in 2023 and heading north uh, continue to head that way we see employers increasingly buying subscriptions of private medical insurance as a incentive to retain their staff which is amazing Um, and we're seeing private medical insurers become more innovative in their product creation so that more people are getting it so I see with the current challenges in the NHS, the wait lists, the difficulty with the workforce, 
but also the capacity and capability that we in the private sector have to be able to help our colleagues in the, in the NHS, I can only see it going one way. So the demand will only increase and it'll and I've seen it in other countries, so it's inevitable it's going to happen in, in Great Britain, Northern Ireland, that private medical uh, and the independent sector will only grow and become far more contemporaneous and more relevant. That's a, a buoyant picture uh, indeed. I want to, You've talked about the workforce and some of the challenges there. I wonder if we can just uh, tarry there for a moment. It's, it's topic number one, I think, for, for politicians. Uh, we have a very tight labour market. We've seen a slew of reports coming out, the General Medical Council in the UK, yeah. highlighting the wellness and burnout challenges for doctors, the, of course, the NHS long-term workforce plan. Uh, looking to double the, uh, the number of training places uh, for clinicians, 300,000 new clinicians over the next 15 years. The Langbuisson Report um, Healthcare Market Review earlier this year still f- uh, highlights the fact that, like everyone else, the independent sector is uh, in a war for talent. There, there is a shortage of yep. clinicians. What are you seeing in terms of uh, the independent sector's drive to innovate, to bring people in? and compete with the NHS, etc. So the, I can see in the private sector, for, first of all, when I was training to be a psychologist first and a doctor second, in the private sector, they never had apprenticeships or they never had training for student doctors and a training programme. That's happening now. Hmm. So that's completely changed in, in the last 20 years. So I'm seeing uh, people in the private sector trying to encourage young people to come into the workforce to become healthcare assistants, nurses and doctors. Um, you know, you've got to remember over a quarter of a million nurses in the country, you know, 50,000 doctors. This is a massive part of the population and absolutely important for our, uh, I suppose, for the whole community. So it's very important to plan it in 15 years. And 15 years will be gone like that, by the way. That's nothing. You know that. And I know that as older people now <laughs> at this point, not you and me. Uh, so, and 20 years goes in a flash. We, it's important that it, healthcare is a nice place to work, it's a good place to work, it's friendly, it's embracing, it's educational. So those clever people are encouraged to continue their professional and personal development and get retained within the NHS and the private sector. So I'm seeing now that there is that innovation and there is, like I have, I'm in a great position, very privileged as CEO of Finn, to go and visit these amazing hospitals and I see how the private hospitals are embracing youth and talent and developing that. And I think on the picture around, I know this is an important topic, but it's slightly tangential, but in order to grow the workforce, I think these innovation pathways are important. We'll come back to that again. Uh, we have to retain the workforce that we've already got. Yep. Uh, and I think a, a golden thread, if I can call it that, running through all these reports is this, the exhaustion from the pandemic, the ongoing mental health challenges. I know that's a personal and professional priority for yeah. you. Any observations in terms of what you're seeing on the ground in the independent sector and more broadly? Uh, it's an absolute imperative, isn't it? It's, uh, mental health is so important. Um, the smartest people in the world are the people who optimise their mental health. Okay, so And I believe mental health should be taught from an early age and how to best and optimise your mental health. You know, Thinking about thinking is a smart thing to do. I think you've got to remember people in medicine, they really don't go into it for the money. Mm. They go into it because they want to help people. They, they love helping patients and they love taking care of the sick. So I think the best thing you can do to retain your staff is make the working conditions better. So, you know, not, not as many massive hours, 
you know, when I was training as a junior doctor, I was on one in four, one in four weekends. I'd go into hospital on a Friday and I'd come home on a Monday night, right? And I wouldn't sleep for the weekend. Like that's, that you just can't do that. It's not sustainable to continue that forever. So better working conditions and um, value your staff, give them some little benefits, make sure they're fed on the wards, you know, simple stuff, you know, these, these individuals want to be there and they really want to help people. So why not laud that and make their workplace a little more comfortable and a little more organized so they feel like also they feel empowered one thing that uh, i um see from the data is the constant pressure people feel that they're not getting on top of their patient lists Mm. so if you're just able to get on top of them and feel like you're um achieving like getting to the bottom of your list or getting you know able to utilize the full capacity of the hospital, getting everyone to theater, you know, and, and treating and feeling like you've done a, a good week's work, then you'll be able to retain your staff a lot better than you are now. And in terms of your own background as a psychologist, of course, the array of mental health interventions and opportunity has never been more in demand. And I think that will be a vital element as we look forward, I mean, forever, but certainly for the next couple of years. Yeah, mental health and, and taking care of people's mental health and them having a place where they can go to help understand how they eat how they exercise, how they sleep. Mental health isn't always about like a mental health problem, as you well know, so it's more about how you optimize how you are as a person. So, and the fundamentals of mental health are those things I've just mentioned. Also socialization and talking to people. Um, and having that resource within the private sector is a given, that's happening. Because yeah. they have, there's a little more finance there and they can do it. NHS is struggling. There's actually um, a big mandate by the... I was a chair of the Professional Practice Board for years in the British Psychological Society, and I'm still very um, mindful of what the BPS are doing. And the NHS are going to potentially relinquish all of the mental health supports for their staff because they can't afford it. Uh, and I think that's um, you know, I think that's a mistake, really. Uh, and it, but also, I think that we can be a bit clever. You don't necessarily have to have a resource. You can just have uh, mental health first aiders. You can have people around you who have been trained to be able to be a support in mental health and just to be able to give you direction on how you can get better sleep and how you can be a bit more mindful. It's very, very important to maintain that freshness and energy in life. No, absolutely. And t- talking of growing numbers we've, we discussed, Again, as a medic, um, uh, the NHS workforce plan is envisioning a reimagination of uh, training and education, um, shorter degrees, potentially apprenticeship pathways, associate roles. How are you seeing that? How important will that revolution be in terms of the way we train clinicians in order to meet this demand? We're seeing quite a lot of innovation within the private sector in terms of use of apprenticeships. Yeah, I think that's really clever. Um, I think when you there's a danger when you've trained to be a psychologist and a doctor. Like you got to remember, to be a doctor takes you a long time, right? So five years in uni, five years of membership and exams, five years of further training, and then you then you start again as a junior consultant, and then you work your way up. So. I think anything that can make that a little more efficient and meaningful for uh, individuals is clever. So I know I spent three years in college before I hit the wards in my fourth year and it was a six year degree. Now it's a five year degree and I'm talking about a four year degree. Mm. I think that if you can do that and get the individuals on the wards quicker and have them properly supervised to a mandate, an education plan by the Royal Colleges, I think that would be um, very, I suppose, inspiring for people who want to go into medicine rather than have to spend so much time on the academic piece but i think it's important to understand the academic piece is really important so you need to have both running in tandem you know that it takes a it's a lot of knowledge and you're always learning as a doctor and as a nurse as any medical professional and uh, you know just to, to to make sure that there's no shortcuts 
I think getting to the wards is clever and the apprenticeship is a clever thing and I think the PM is I think that was a clever thing for for him to to potentially introduce but also uh, it's important to also note it's not a shortcut it's just that the both you just the demands would be more even on the individual they'll have to be better on the wards but also continue their academic learning is still important and one final element on this whole piece is the there is the allure and the promise of uh, a revolution using uh, technology, AI, etc. I mean, perhaps at the beginning of that. Um, do you see that as a role that's going to help uh, clinicians uh, over the longer term? I think shorter term, that's slightly different. I think shorter term, some of the comments are trite. I don't think it's um, they're particularly relevant. If you look at pilots back in the day, the, the captain was the person who ran the show. And then as their pilots and the air uh, industry, uh, travel industry developed, the captain wasn't the person in charge of the plane anymore. It was the first officer. And the captain was the person who trained everyone. Mm. And and she would sit back and look at the first officer and then look at the staff and know what to do. I think medicine will go the same way. Mm. I think senior doctors will be responsible for administering and training other staff to do various bits and pieces and then influence IT and technology to be able to do some of that work. Mm. So you'll be able to use some of the clevers and the training that medics have to input into um, gamification, metaverse. We're already seeing robotics and surgery. Back in the day, I was doing radical prostatectomies and neurology. That's all done by robots now, <laughs> and the outcomes are much better. And you're able to you know, perform surgery in London on people in Africa because that's, that's how we're able to distribute um, our knowledge now through that technology. So it's inevitable. Um, but it it just it it's going to take time. It, it requires a lot of clevers, and it, it, I think it's not necessarily AI. But I think I also think potentially in a thousand years, yeah, there'll be a lot of robotics and a lot of uh, technology that'll be doing the work that humans are doing right now. I also, but I, you know, a lot of faith in human ability. So I, I, I kind of think humans will still be involved in some way. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Stepping now back to the raison d'etre of all healthcare, Finn, which is the, the support of patient outcomes. Uh, I want to focus on data. Um, there's been a revolution in data science. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more in what you're doing? Because I understand you're driving research. You work with the LSE, you've mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some interesting research looking at systems level use of data coming out of the University of Manchester, University of York that you're uh, involved in. Yeah, so Finn create the architecture to, to deliver the order or deliver data about the performance of the private health sector. But that architecture is versatile and is used by the NHS as well. And we are working with the University of Manchester on a project that's funded by the National Institute of Health Research um, to look at the journey of the patient and how to make that journey better. By December, Finn actually will publish a number of patient-reported outcome measures, PROMs, and that's like outcomes for patients who have had particular surgeries, the top 10 surgeries in, at the moment, you know, cataract surgery, inguinal hernias, knee replacements, hip replacements. And we look at what interventions cause what outcomes for patients and how the patient has got their mobility back, quality of life, all that. So we've created all that tech and architecture to be able to provide that information to the public and to the government. So we know what works, what intervention is the best intervention, and then we can fin hit enables the drive to continue improving those outcomes and we've got massive buy-in from the colleges and from like you say uh, the epidemiology speaks for itself from the LSE it's been validated by Oxford University uh, saying that the data that we publish is really relevant and we have government listening and our colleagues in NHS also are producing equally important data we're working really closely together so that you know what was for instance very tangible uh, example 
10 years ago you needed your hip replacing you were in hospital for five days now mm. you can be in and out in a day and you're back running a marathon in three months <laughs> so you know that's it's this kind of data that's driving that change and just to, to mention in terms of the collaboration of data, uh, the ADAPT program might be worth us talking about that you, you're working with the NHS, NHS England, uh, to make sure that, that that data is across the whole system. Yeah, so we, we collect data with the NHS. We both have uh, similar architecture that we're like, putting together. So we're not duplicating work. We're actually being quite innovative. So it reflects whole practice. So an awful lot of doctors and nurses work both in the public and private sector. So our data reflects their practice in both sectors. So the ADAPT program does that. Uh, and we're working very closely. It was NHS Digital mm. and then then became, now it's all NHS England. Um, and we're working together to effectively harness that architecture so that we can collectively know what the outcomes are for patients if they're in a public trust, but also then if they move from public to private trust or if they're just getting private sector work. So, yep, just joined up thinking, really. Absolutely. I want to finish off, if I may, to look at those labels public and private. Uh, traditionally, the NHS has sat in its own silo in the perception. Independent sector has grown more significant. If you look at the level of... Uh, NHS work that's gone to the independent sector over the last decade. It's been a dramatic increase. Uh, the Prime Minister set up uh, the Elective Recovery Task Force mm -hmm. at the end of 2022 to look at the role of the independent sector. Stepping back with all of your experience across healthcare and the work of Finn uh, and your access to the data, what is the role of the independent sector, in particular around collaboration uh, around with the NHS as we look forward? Because we are seeing uh, patients looking at alternative routes and being provided patient choice. Mm -hmm. What's your prognosis around how this will evolve? I really encourage the population to change their perception about what is public and private care. Don't think of it as a two-tier system where one is better and one is different. Think of it as a twin-track system that mm. runs in parallel and that one can learn from the other. The private sector has capacity, so it can help with waiting lists in the public sector. We are there to support our colleagues and to offer other innovation and new ideas like any private sector good would be compared to a not-for-profit and Finn is a not-for-profit so like you know very experienced in that but the importance of the NHS work cannot be undermined over a million people are employed with the NHS and they take care of amazing acute uh, emergency medicine as well as cancer and I think that those patients always need to be prioritized right, right. the private sector has capacity to do some of what is, and my colleagues would not like me saying, is the rudimentary surgery. It's not rudimentary to do an inguinal hernia or, or a hip, but it is the simpler surgery relative to some of the emergency trauma work. Mm. And they have the, the, the private sector has the capacity and has the data and insight to know what's a, what is effective and how we can help and provide the, um, that intervention for cataracts, knee replacements, hip replacements, inguinal hernia, uh, basic cardiology work. So I think... We need to, as a population, think differently that the private sector is not the enemy or mm. it's not different. It's just a hybrid or a different form of the same care. It's just in a different place, but it's equally good care and it's there to support the NHS. So not a model of conflict, but model of uh, collaboration. 100%. Uh, on that uh, encouraging note, uh, Dr Ian Gargan, thank you very much for your time and for your refreshing candour. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sal. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow and subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to know how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.
Voices of Care is published by New Cross Healthcare. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.